and time goes by i walk by and i walk around and i see people with little kids and i, I just want to tell them you know enjoy it because it goes by really fast welcome to the art of fatherhood a podcast that takes you on the journey of fatherhood now here's your host art eddie What's going on, everybody? Already here for another edition of the Art of Fatherhood podcast. I'm very happy to have Monty Schultz. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me, sir. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to be talking a little bit about father. We're going to be talking about your book, Metropolis. Congratulations on that book. And then uh, we're just going to talk a little bit, you know, just about writing and, and, and things in general. But talk to me when you found out you were going to be a dad. What was going through your mind, sir? Well, I found out uh, we did it um, IVF, okay, and uh, the first time it didn't take the second time i guess those numbers were super high the doctor told my wife that we were either going to have a super baby or twins and <laughs> so it was twins we had twins so i was really uh thrilled about that um yeah it was fun having twins <laughs> nice. now, right so i mean it's so it's so, and time goes by i walk by and i walk around and i see people with little kids and I'm, i just want to tell them you know enjoy it because it goes by really fast yeah, uh, it, which it has. So uh, oh, yeah, yeah it it, it's funny. The days are long, but the years are short, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's actually actually for me the way I charted it to, to answer to address that exactly was that uh, I it just used to kill me getting up on Mondays and Tuesdays after my wife and I split up. I had to uh, I had my mornings to take the boys to school, and it took uh, well obviously every Monday and Tuesday I was really tired, especially Tuesdays, getting up, taking the boys to school, getting to school. And, kept, and, and so I'm thinking, wow, I, can't, I could wait to the end of the school year. And then time goes by, and then they're seniors, and they're driving themselves to school, in high school. And at that point, I realized, oh, well, I miss it. I miss that. And now it's gone. It's done. Yeah. Uh, and it just that's where it's suddenly I realized, wow, it just went by too fast, too fast. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. Man. Thank you very much for sharing that. Talk about some of the values you were looking to instill into your kids as they were growing up? I guess uh, one thing is stuff I got from my dad because my dad died the year before they were born. So mm -hmm. they never got to know him. And uh, um, I guess to be, it's always to see, you know, be honest and, uh, but to be conversational and be very polite with people when they meet uh, uh, family, friends or strangers, whatever, and they are, they're very good. They're very polite. Um Incidentally, they also like being photographed. I mean, they're really good about it. I guess they saw right away since they like seeing themselves in photos that to get there, they have to be photographed. And so, the, so they were really good. They're very animated about it. And they're very nice. There's no, never any hesitation for that. Um, but it's, um, I guess, yeah, to be, be, be nice and, 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 and conversation. Also, I told them, I tried to instill in them to uh, resist peer group pressure. Mm. You know, so I, I started really young for that. I said, it doesn't matter what, your friends do you can't your friends if your friends want you to do something that you don't want to do that you're not comfortable with then they're not really your friends okay and i think fortunately for the boys what helped them is having each other so they weren't uh they didn't feel like they had to belong because really they kind of didn't and uh they always have uh, a built-in playmate right so uh, in fact one of their friends was saying that well oh, so Wesley and john henry have they have somebody to play with all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's that's sort of it. And I think it's stuck. They're very individual. Yeah. Uh, so I like that. Yeah. Nice. Love that. Thank you very much for sharing that. And what is something that your sons have taught you either about life or about yourself that you wouldn't mind sharing? Um, 
I guess they taught me to be patient. Mm. Okay. Um, and uh, to not be uh, authoritarian. You know, when they play, when they play sports, I hear all the dads, you know, yelling at the kids, come on, Johnny, you have to, come on, work, work, work. And, and, and I, I was never like that because my dad wasn't like that. I was, I just would stand on the sidelines and just watch. And sometimes I'd call something out to them, a little piece of advice or something. Uh, or when they'd come over on a water break, I would sort of tell them something, but otherwise I didn't, I didn't yell. And so for them, I learned, um, I learned to be different as a dad than I am as a player. I played hockey for 35 years. And uh, I, I would not yell at my teammates, but I was very uh, intense. And uh, but but as a coach, I was I also coached in hockey, and I also wasn't a coach who yelled at the players. I just it's just not my personality. And so then and so I was able to bring that to them. And then they told me later on when they're playing lacrosse, they said, "Yeah, we like you. We, we like you, Dad, because you don't yell at us <laughs> uh, like the other dads do. We're like way too intense. What are you talking about?" And so I, I guess I. Yeah, I, I learned. Well, let's put it this way: I learned the value of that, the correctness of that. Just being there, let them play. And so, and so, likewise, when their team would win, I wouldn't say we won, we won. My 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 ex would do that. Yeah, we won. I go, well, we didn't win; they won. <laughs> um, so I'm not partisan like that. I, I I let them. I let them be. I let them experience it. And so I learned to see from them how beneficial that was. Nice. I, that That is fantastic. It's a great perspective to have and the idea of like patience and then also to just, you know, letting them kind of experience things through their own perspective and not being like a helicopter parent. I love it. Um, one more question before we get into your book, Metropolis. What is like a piece of advice or a dad hack you'd offer to new dads? Uh, again, to be, to be patient, understand they are not you. Okay. And they are not, although we, we, nurture them uh they're not um you can't live your life you can't live your life through them hmm. all right so if you i'm sorry if you were an athlete and you can't compete anymore they're not standing so you can have a second life as a participant your life as a participant once you start competing is over and if you really feel that need, then you go out in the playground, you go into the gym, whatever, you go to the ice rink or whatever, you play, go on your own soccer field. Don't take that to them. And growing up and growing up, yeah, teach them, let them be their own person. My boys don't share many of my interests. Uh, I don't, so, so many dads I see have their kids be um, like little mini memes. Right. So it's really funny. And I see it in sports all the time in professional sports where the, the dad was a hockey player and their kids are hockey players. The dads are football player and the kids are football players. I'm not like that at all. Boys, the boys never played hockey. I really kind of didn't want to. It's a, it's a really a bad attitude sport, I'll tell you. But I don't I never had them do that. They're they are not me. They are themselves. And I've never have cur encouraged them to be me. And my dad didn't. My dad wasn't like that either. He let me find my own interests. We shared a lot. But he let me find them on my own. I think that's what I would say. Let them be themselves and applaud them and help raise them in their in their, for their lives. Great piece of advice right there. Yeah, I, I love it, Monty, because you're just, again, you uh, when you're talking about athletes and all that, it just kind of throws me back to the, you know, Varsity Blues movie with James Vanderbeek's like, tells his, you know, his dad, like, I don't want your life, right? Like, I don't want to be you and I don't care about football as much as you think I should or, you know, how, how much you do. So I like that. Again, congrats on the book, Metropolis. Talk a little bit about the inspiration uh, for this book. 
Uh, yeah, that's a kind of tricky one. I because I conceived the book and wrote the first fifty pages and a bunch of notes and stuff after like eighteen years ago, and then oh, I wow. uh, I gave the book up for sixteen years and started writing it in two thousand nine. So uh, I had to write a little blurb about it yesterday and and sort of addressing that like where did the ideas come from? I don't really. I don't really remember. I just wanted to write a novel. I hadn't been, I hadn't written a book in years. I, I'd stopped writing, finished, I published six books, and then I went to music. And, uh, and then, but I had this book all this time, and I realized that books, um, books fill my time better than music was because trying to wrangle the musicians to record is just, is just a pain. So, anyway, I put this book up, and I, I realized, I remember I wanted to write a book that had a big story. And so, Metropolis is a story about a, a college student in a world where eugenics has taken over and destroyed the society, the, the pursuit of a perfection. Um, eugenics is, as a, a word invented in the 19th century, meaning well-born. And, and an Englishman, Francis J. Galton, invented it. And the idea was to perfect the human race, perfect society by having the best people mate and, uh, and be groomed uh, to improve society. When eugenics came west to the United States, we took a different tack, which was get rid of the people we don't like, the feeble-minded, the infirm, the sociopathic, the criminal, uh, do away with them. And of course, we found that the end of that was at Auschwitz, where you just kill everybody that you don't like, everybody that's not you. And that's what I, I say in this book. It's about hatred, but it's also about love. Uh, my character, Julian Bream, a college senior, falls in love with a girl named Nina, who's got an eight-year-old sister, and uh, he's a college student at uh, Regency College, and uh, he gets sort of drawn into the under the underground of uh, the struggle against the, a eugenical society, and then a war that's been going on for sixty years. Um, I, I wrote yesterday that it's sort of a parallel to being a college student, let's say in Germany at Heidelberg University in say nineteen forty three, uh, where what I call the desolation in my book would be the war in the Soviet Union, uh, which was a, a straight up eugenics war. So that's really what the idea of the book is about. Uh, yeah, I mean, very super interesting. But I also I kind of want to go back to the point where you had this idea, you put it on the shelf, no dad joke or pun pun intended there, but like you put it on the shelf and then it came back. Was it tough to kind of get back into the groove of your original thought to now, you know, as you completed it, like, or do you think it was kind of beneficial because, you know, maybe, uh, you know, as a creator, whether you're writing books, music, whatever the case may be, inspiration will come, things will happen. And maybe it happened for a reason where maybe the book wouldn't have been the way you wanted it to be if you, if you worked on it years ago, as opposed to now, like, are you glad the, the evolution and the, and the way the book evolved? Well, okay. It was actually a very simple re reason I stopped writing it. The reason was that I couldn't, it's a fictional republic. It turns out now, well, I'll explain it to you. I didn't, uh, I couldn't figure out how my college senior, Julian Bream, could study the Greeks and the Romans in a fictional republic. And he also, also, there's a quote at one point in the book from, uh, in what I'd written at the time, from uh, James Joyce. And I said, how can James Joyce be in this fictional republic? And then, and then in the spring of 2019, I just realized, uh, following a Ray Bradbury quote, uh, about how something could happen on his books. He says, because I say it's so. And that's what I realized. Okay, so then I picked the book up. 
and 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 your question was a good one about how how could I keep going on it? How could I did it? Was the time in between valuable? Well, I had a friend who was reading it as I started to write it again, and she said, "Well, obviously you're probably writing a lot better now. You have a better idea than you did back then." I said, "No, no, no, no." I said those first because she didn't know that those first fifty pages I'd written eighteen years ago, and she read it. I said, "No, I wrote that eighteen years ago. It's seamless." The interesting thing about Metropolis was that this issue of sort of getting back into it was a non-issue because I literally made the entire thing up. And everyone says literally, but I mean, I literally made it up. <laughs> I made it up as I was writing it. I had no outline whatsoever. I had this for first 50 pages. I knew where the book was going to end, but I just day after day after day, I just wrote it just all came to me in a way that no writing I've ever done in my entire life ever has. I had no problems. I had no blocks. I had, had no, nothing. The ideas just popped into my head. For I wrote a 668-page novel in essentially nine months. Uh, I would get up every morning. I, I made up a writing routine where I had to get up, and I had to write at least one page in the morning before I ate or drank anything. So that was very uh, motivating because while I'm saying eight lines from the end of that full full page, uh, visions of ham sandwiches and tuna sandwiches and food are floating through my head. Just get it done. How many eight lines now? How many five lines now? How many two lines? And then, of course, I could write. Uh, I had to write. I could write in the afternoon. And then I could write another page or two or three. And some a couple mornings, I actually did write a, a couple pages because I had something. I just wanted to keep going. But that forced me, and I only missed three mornings in nine months, and I got the whole thing done. And so, so. Although you're right, it can be hard to sort of get, as I say, get back in the saddle. It never was. Nice. It never was uh, because I just made it all up. Yeah. I had, I didn't, the book wasn't, I, did, I didn't think the book would be 600, 668 pages. I thought it'd be like about 400. Uh, it's in four different sections. And the first section is like 238. And then I get into the next section. I had no idea where in the desolation or the war part. I had no plan for that whatsoever. I just started writing and made it up as I went along. And then the third section of the book, same thing, just made it up as I went along. Coming to the last part of the book, I thought the last part, yeah, I don't really know what's going to happen. So it's probably going to be the shortest of the four. It ended up being the longest of the four. So uh, it's just the, the whole creative process from Metropolis was uh, completely different from anything I'd ever written before. So, nice. yeah. And, you know, talk about the, the themes of being hate and love and, uh -huh. you know, just humanity and all that. Is there a character, I and mean, of course you got the main characters, but is there a character that you love, doesn't have to be the main character, but it was just fun creating, like, you know, parts for, or just certain themes for? Like, is there a character that we should be on the lookout for as we're reading this book? I like, here's the thing. I like all the characters. Okay. I like my main character. I like his girlfriend, Nina. I like his roommate, Freddie Barron, who's a, a puzzle master and uh, an alcoholic, <laughs> not a good student, barely surviving. Um, and like Freddie and Julian are basically helping themselves get through college. They both have, Freddie's father is a doctor, an eminent uh, doctor in, in, in the town they're coming. And Julian's a successful businessman. They're trying to live up the legacy of their parents, and, who they love too. I don't have a, there's no, um, you know, dysfunctional family here, except that Freddie's sisters are like two Gorgons, two, two spawns of hell, they say. And then, uh, and then, and then I like, uh, there's a, a character they meet named uh, Marco, who's, um, he's, uh, he's had a terrible life and uh, he's an assassin, uh, but he saves Julian multiple times. Julian doesn't even like him. He 
doesn't like him at all, but at the end he admires him for being for being stalwart in uh, in, in protecting them. Uh, so, and when people read the book, I ask them afterwards which characters they like, and they all like this character or that character, or they don't like. They they think Julian's boring, or they think Nina is just a total bitchy, <laughs> whatever. Uh, they like Freddie. I go, why do you like Freddie best? But I like them all because they're all because I've made them all different, so it's splintered out. So in that sense, I don't really I like some of the people that Julian meets along the way. Uh, a guy named uh, Mr. Sutro, who who explains to him about eugenics. Julian asks him, so what is eugenics? He says, simply an excuse for hatred. He goes, I could give you a, a bigger discourse, but it's really nothing more than that. Yeah. And uh, so he learns things from different people along the way. Um, and there's a little girl near the end named Zenus, who is a very brave, and you see the, the, the uh, penultimate expression of her, her courage near the end of the book. But she's also a fun character. And also Nina's uh, little sister, Delia, was really funny to write. Uh, Julian comes in the dining room, sees her reading. So what are you reading? She goes, Poofus the cat. Is it good? If you're a baby, <laughs> uh, Nina won't let me read anything else. And Nina says, uh, she spills. I do not. Uh, uh, the angel and the dove. That wasn't my fault. Marco shoved the table. Still, sorry. That kind of thing. Yeah. So it's fun to write a little girl. Uh, I like writing all of them. Uh, they're just all fun. And they're all different. I guess I like Julian the best. Um, uh, but, um, but they're all fun in their own way. Yeah. Nice. Uh, one more question before we finish off in the father and quick five, uh, you know, you mentioned your dad, obviously Charles M. Schultz, peanuts characters, and this, this comic book strip, Snooky, all that stuff. But what is like, did you guys talk about writing and what were certain things? What was some of the advice he gave you about being creative and writing? Well, dad, Dad exposed me to writing and reading, well, reading really early on in a, in a very subtle and smooth and, and gradual way. He had me, because he grew up in the cartooning and popular culture world, right? So he liked W.C. Fields movies, which he had me watch. And uh, we watched together sometimes. And he had me read those uh, Tintin books, uh, uh, the Snowy and all that sort of thing. So I read those and the idea of adventures. He gave me a book called, uh, which had been his, Driscoll's Book of Pirates. And so I read that. So, and then I read H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, and then later on Ray Bradbury. And then when I got old enough, when he saw I could write, I started writing music. I started writing lyrics. He would show me passages. So rather than talking about books, he would have me read, uh, he showed me passages from, uh, say, Steinbeck in Grapes of Wrath, where this about the tourist crossing the road. He said, look at that passage. He had me read the passages the great soaring passages of Thomas Wolfe. Uh, so I fell in love with that, with that kind of writing. And so I guess my writing, the style I write is supremely influenced by dad. And then as I got to be a certain age, he said, I've been waiting my whole life to build talk about books with you. And so I got to where we would share books and authors back and forth. And uh, one thing he did tell me, and I've been using the interview so to W about, everyone talks about writer's block. Well, I've been blocked. I was blocked for months. And dad said really early on, he said, only amateurs get writer's block. Professionals can't afford it, uh, which he couldn't, right? He had to have six six dailies and a Sunday in every week. Yeah. So, so I took that to heart. And I, 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 I tell, when I teach writing, I said, look, writer's block is one of two, one of two things. Sometimes about laziness, okay? You're just not going to get to it. Or uh, fear of writing something bad. But you're always better off writing something than nothing. You're always better off if you have a page of a bunch of nonsense. It's better than a blank page. You yeah. can always maybe you'll find one sentence in there you like and you move it on. But you cannot get blocked. There is no such thing. 
it just doesn't make sense. I never had it. Dad could not afford to have it. And uh, that's really what I, I, I learned from him. Again, I guess uh, the, the love of reading. Uh, that's yeah. me, love of yeah. reading. Yeah, I, I love that and the idea of putting something out there when you're writing and seeing, you know, you might not be happy with it, but something from that could spark into something that you're very proud of. And that's a great lesson to teach your kids, right? Right, 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 right. right. And love we it. were, dad and I were not the same. Um, so dad could write and draw. I could write and I write in long form. He couldn't write long stuff. So whenever he had books, he had to write where um, there'd be captioned pictures from peanuts. Then he had to write a little paragraph talking about it. It didn't happen very often. But if a book would come out, you have to do that. It, it was torture. He goes, because I just find it really hard to do because he's used to writing in the small panels, right? Um, so I, I, I'm writing what he wanted to write, what he would have written if he could have. And, and I, I'm very aware that I do that. The other thing I have, I can't draw, but I can compose music. So there is the difference. So we both have we both have two art forms. Um, mine, of course, the difference is I'm not as successful commercially as he as he was, and I, don't know, I probably never will be. That's just how it goes. But I think I think he would feel the quality of my book is a novel I wrote before this. Uh, I spent ten years, twelve years, fifteen years on called Crossing Eden. Uh, is a it's set in, it's set in the spring and summer and fall of 1929, and that's the book where. He is in there as a kid. I have a lot of quotes from him uh, and and, uh, and scenes where I've done interviews with him, put them verbatim in the book. Um, so the book serves a function of being also sort of biographical of our family. And uh, I hear his voice in all of that. And uh, and it's sort of bittersweet because at the end, when I, he read the entire book, not unedited, but I hadn't had the epigraph. And I sensed in my heart somehow he had to die before I could write the epigraph. And he did, and I did. Right. And so he never saw the finished book, but did. Yeah, I, I published it. It was published in 2016. And I did a book tour on it and everything. And uh, it kind of came and went. <laughs> but, but, I, but I can tell you, unreservedly, it was the best book published in America in 2016. And if anybody would say, no, I don't know, I'd say, you know what? That's fine. Let's put our books on the table, okay, and compare them. Because I can tell you, there's nothing published that year on the same level as Crossing Eden. Doesn't matter. Didn't make me any money. Didn't got me. It didn't even get any attention. But it is a really phenomenally great book, and the people who read it, my publishers and my agents and everybody, all felt that way. They were shocked. It didn't make me famous. But you know that's how life goes. You know, dad didn't expect to be famous. Son of a barber, and it wanted to be. We wanted to be uh, syndicated in one, in one newspaper. It ended up being in over two thousand, and still is. You know, twenty two years after his death. So, yep. Appreciate you sharing that, Monty. Now we're going to finish off with the father a quick five. Favorite family movie? Do you guys have one? Uh, family movie. Uh, you mean my family or with my 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 dad's family? No, with you and your with you and your sons. Oh, uh, yeah, we liked uh, we liked Tremors with, oh, uh, yes. with Kevin Bacon and uh, yes. and We liked that. We saw Tremors one, two, three. <laughs> we watched them all. They dressed up as uh, Val and uh, I can't remember the other guy. They dressed up and, and had adventures like that. Yeah. Uh -huh. That's cool, man. I, I love when you have those like cult movies, pop culture, like, you know, classics that people maybe didn't do so good in the theaters, but then when it comes on VHS or DVD or whatever, it's, you know, uh, it hit home. I love it. Um, was there an art, you know, especially with music and all that, with your background in music, was there an artist or a band you couldn't wait to share the music with or some type of genre you couldn't wait to share uh, your, your your favorite genre of music with them? 
Um, well, I used to play them. There's a song when they were little um, called This Side by the band, band Nickel Creek. And um, uh, Wesley was getting, he broke his arm and he had to have his cast off and he was a little scared and kind of weepy. And so I put the headphones on, I played uh, This Side for him. And so sometimes at night before they go to bed, I'd put that on and play it for him. So they, they, they like that. Uh, after nice. later on they found their own music but uh, i would play you know, little things like that but that one particularly was was uh, if they hear it they would it would be the song from their childhood nice that's great uh and that's that's like the perfect song i was asking for so i appreciate that uh describe the perfect family vacation where would it be uh what we used to do was we went up to uh, tahoe city to grand labakan lodge and we would go sledding and then snowshoeing off into the woods and we did that uh, every year for a while. And then, oh, I should, uh, well, yeah, we went to Hawaii. We started coming to Hawaii in 2005 when they were four years old. 2005, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10. Um, and they were just here this summer. So Hawaii is their place to go. Uh, they We used to stay at the Royal Hawaiian um, Hotel, and they loved that. Uh, so, yeah, the perfect place, I guess, either Grand Labak in the winter and, uh, and then uh, the Royal Hawaiian on Oahu. Nice. Yeah. So when you're not creating music or writing books or anything along those lines, when you do have spare time, do you have a hobby? Do you have like just something that, you know, when you have you time, what is it? I, well, here I play tennis or, well, I ride my, I've got an electric bike and I ride it uh, almost every day. It's been raining the last couple of days, so I haven't, but I like riding the bike. Uh, it's really easy to ride. And I zoom around and up the hills and whatever. And then uh, I play tennis, although I cut my finger really badly this spring. So I've been able to play since I've been here. But I do that. I don't play hockey anymore. I stopped about 10 years ago. I miss it, but I just got old and I couldn't skate. I couldn't play like I wanted to. So, uh, you know, that's it. I read. Okay. I mean, I don't write. I'm not, I'm not the writer where, you know, I'm writing, sitting in front of the computer for like eight hours. I don't write like that. I write more in amounts, write a page and I'm kind of done. And again, when I cut my finger, I could not, uh, it, when it hitting the key, stung. Sting, yeah. sting, sting. So I haven't been to do as much writing as I wanted to, but that's sort of about it. Uh, I didn't really play guitar because I'm more, I get introduced sometimes as a singer songwriter. I go, well, no, I'm not really a singer. So I'm not really a singer. I'm not really, I'm a mediocre rhythm guitarist. I'm a really good composer, but I'm, my guitar playing is sort of, but let's put it this way. I, I can't say entertain myself playing guitar. So I don't do what you're just asking. I don't, I, I can, I can pick and I can play, I can play to a click track. So I'm okay, but that's really it. Yeah. Nice. Shopping. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. My, my mini cooper my uh john cooper works i mean i like my cars but that's what i got across with boys they love cars they love cars and so i let my uh, i have a porsche cayman i got in 2009 and i taught the boys how to drive a stick shift on that car wow and, uh, <laughs> john henry john henry uh last spring says so dad you know how you said uh uh so uh we can take the car out when you're in hawaii i said no, no. In fact, I said you can't take it out. <laughs> Why? Where? What? No. But he he just got a job as a I guess he got the job as a, a valet driver, and he had to say so had to drive the stick shift, and so he had to prove that he could do that. So I said, so can I take the Cayman over to that hotel? I said, uh, okay, sure, sure, go ahead. So I let them drive my car, and I'm sure they're happy with that. We share that too. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. And lastly, top three words you hope your sons would use to describe you as a dad, what would you want them to be? Um, caring and patient and uh, loving. Great. Great and, three words right there. 
Yeah, those I think I think they would say and 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 inspiration. Wesley Wesley, they don't talk to me that much about it. Wesley says uh, I'm very inspirational to him. He oh, tries wow. to live up to my uh, to who I am as a person and uh, uh, that. So I'm very I've been proud of that. I'm not overbearing at all. And nice patient with them as much as I can be. Right. So yeah. As a dad, you'd love to hear that that kind of stuff. So that's amazing. Monty, thank you very much for your time. People, make sure you follow him on Twitter, Monty Schultz. Go check out uh, Metropolis, wherever uh, you can purchase books, or you can purchase the book over at metropolisthebook.com. Um, thank you again for your time. Uh, congrats on the book, and I wish you and uh, your son's continued success, sir. Thank you. It's a very fun interview. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for checking out this week's edition of the Art of Fatherhood podcast. Please rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And also go to artoffatherhood.net. You can have a chance to check out some great articles like the weekly Dad's Doing It Right column, the Collector of the Week, and many more. Plus, you have a chance to win some very cool prizes like video games, collectibles, all that good stuff. Go to artoffatherhood.net. And please make sure you rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to podcasts because I'll greatly appreciate it to get the word out on the Art of Fatherhood podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Art of Fatherhood podcast. Leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and go to artoffatherhood.net.